Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Greg Daniel. Greg is an actor who is currently appearing as Reverend Daniels on the final season of True Blood. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, Greg, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to acting in the first place. I think it was language, love of language. My father's from a Caribbean island that used to be obviously a British colony. It's called St. Vincent is his island. And of course, they had a lot of things British that he grew up with. So one of the things we had in our home was a volume of Shakespeare. It was this volume of Shakespeare, all the tragedies, comedies, sonnets, and I don't know, being a precocious young guy, kid, I started reading it. I had no idea what it was saying, the meaning behind it, but I just loved the language. And then by the time I heard people speak it in school or some school class I took or somewhere on television and I heard the, the poetry, the ambic pentameter, again, this was Shakespeare, I just fell in love with language. I thought, wow, that is absolutely amazing. Then when I finally saw a production, it might have been Hamlet, Macbeth, I'm not sure which one was first. I just, wow, I said, I, I have to do that. That is just the most that's the most endearing thing in the world. How fascinating this language. So I think it was language that brought me to uh, acting. This this love of hearing these words, and then when I found what the meaning was behind them, oh my goodness, <laughs> the uh, you know the life and death stakes, the comedies. It was just uh, it was it was revealing a, an entirely new world to me. So I came through it through language. What did your parents do for a living when you were growing up? Actually, my father was a painter. He was a professional painter. My mother was a secretary at a firm in New York City. Uh, but my father was just a simple, simple painter. As I said, he came from a Caribbean island, came to uh, the United States, naturalized citizen, uh, raised two boys in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, he was just thrilled that we could both get free education because uh, when he was growing up, again, under the British system, you had to pay at a, a certain standard you reached. You had to start paying. So he was just thrilled that, uh, wow, I'm an American now, and I have two sons, and they can, they can get free education all the way up through uh, college. So it was a bit of a shock when I declared I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock. But I have to say, my parents' defense, they never dissuaded me. Once I found acting, I knew that's what I wanted to do. They never dissuaded me. They always stood behind me. Uh, and, I, and they saw some pretty wild things. I attended uh, NYU's Tisch School of the Arts for training, and, uh, boy, they came down and saw me in some pretty wild shows at the time. <laughs> oh, I got to say, I, I, I look back at them now and I go, what, well, the parents really have to love their kids. I mean, there was some terrific work, of, of course, but, again, we were young. We were doing all kinds of experimental stuff, but they never said anything that persuaded me. At some point along the way, they realized this kid really loves the world of theater and the world of acting. That's what he wants to do. So that was uh, that was. Uh, that was something I treasure about them. They're both gone now. I've lost them both over the years. They passed away. But I, uh, I always remember how they, while they didn't understand it all, so you get one job. I, I never forget my father asking me, so after you finish the job, you have to go look for another job? <laughs> uh, yeah, Dad, yeah. So you do a job. So yes, that, that whole system, he just, because there were no artists per se in the family, particularly actors. So just trying to unwrap his mind around that, because uh, at his time it was cradle to the grave job. You got a job and then you stay with it until retirement. But again, they always encouraged me. They never dissuaded me. And I thank them uh, wholeheartedly for that. I think that process of the industry is one of the strangest. And uh, so many of the actors I've come on have, have come on the podcast have talked about they think they're going to hit a point in their career, whether it be they get the first national commercial or they, they're a series regular on a show, they're a regular in movies, whatever it is that they're like, we're not going to have to audition anymore. <laughs> 
people have come on who have been featured on shows, series regulars, and they're like, well, at least I won't have to audition. Right when the show's over, you go right back to the pile. That's exactly how work is getting work. I mean, I always say, because sometimes I coach young actors, uh, part of the actor's job, the, the, the business of the business is getting work. You're all, as soon as I start a job, I'm looking for another one. I'm on the phone with my agents. Okay, what's coming up? What's happening? Because that's just the nature of the beast. We are always looking for work. Now, you might get more recognized, of course, along the way, and you build up a body of work that people can refer to. So sometimes you get called in directly. Every now and then you get an offer. Every now and then I've got an offer straight out from a show or from a producer. But uh, I like to keep the audition muscle working. So even when I'm doing something, if I can, uh, I still like to go out for projects uh, we, we let them know I might be tied up for the next month or so, but it's sort of muscle. It's like a muscle. The more you audition, particularly finding your own way, nobody auditions the same way. You have to clue into this. I guess this falls under advice to young actors as well. You have to discover what is your process of auditioning? What brings out the best in you when you get in that room? So that takes some time, but when you get into that process and you find it, you have to keep doing it because a, a, a stretch of time, not that I want to do it, but a stretch of time away from it, like any muscle, it begins to get a little uh, atrophied. So I, I try and continue auditioning no matter what, just to keep that muscle uh, taut and to keep, it, uh, to keep it active. Do you feel like your auditioning style has evolved or changed since when you first started? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I understand the room now. I understand I'm auditioning more for than just the role. I'm auditioning for other roles, for that casting director of that producer. It's not just the one role in the show, but now I understand the, the whole totality. Uh, that casting director is going to get other shows down the line, and they're going to remember me, hopefully, if I've done a great job and keep calling me in. Also, I've learned how to sort of relax the room without being overly... Uh, just overly uh, happy about it. I've learned to sort of show them I can do the work, that I'm going to be terrific on the set, that, uh, you know, by honoring the words, by honoring the scene, by trying to find something. So it's to give them a collective feeling that, hey, if we hire this guy, he's going to be fine. He can do something with this role, that's obvious, and he seems to be a pleasant person to be around. Because as you know, we work sometimes 12, 14, 15 hour days, and you want to be around people that are going to be pleasant, that are not going to snap under the pressure or get moody or get withdrawn, that maybe lifts the entire set. So I realize now why I'm going to audition is not just for that role, it's for other roles to come, and it's also to signal to the producers and the director and everyone there that this is someone you really want to have on your set because when it comes down to the 16th hour, this guy is going to be fine. He's going to deliver. So, yes, I've learned a lot more now in terms of what it means to audition for a role. So you decide to become an actor. You go to NYU. What were your initial expectations for yourself and to what a career as an actor would be when you graduated from NYU? Well, you know, I did something very, I didn't know it was smart at the time, but after I wanted to get away from NYU as far as I could, there was a group of people that were beginning a theater company out of NYU, and I wanted nothing to do with it. It wasn't a matter or anything. I just, I just wanted to find, once again, I referenced that early in the interview, my process of working. So I went ahead and started doing regional theater all around the country for the next 10 years. I mean, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, Williamstown, Massachusetts, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. I just did theater, like for the next decade. And that also exposed me to people who didn't come out of conservatory programs, but had their own valid way of working. So I got to view how other actors work, and I got to do a lot of body of work I probably would not have done in New York, because they wouldn't have cast me. 
but in the region, it's a little different. They have a subscription audience, so they can take chances and do non-traditional casting if they wish. So that time just to discover my own way of working was so valuable. And by the time I got out to Los Angeles, there was just no material you could give me that I couldn't do, that I couldn't understand. I had such a basis then in uh, all types of language and plays and and styles and methods that I was so familiar with my process of working that I, when I came out, I was quite confident that I was going to work and that there was no material that could be thrown at me that I couldn't break down, at least technically break down, and understand what's the objective in the scene, what's the operative word, what's the, all those kinds of things that really help you to know what you're doing when you get a piece of material. So that was one of the best things I did, just to do all types of plays in all types of places with all types of audiences. It really uh, just made my instrument that much stronger. By the time I got out here, as I said, I I was ready, man. I was ready to rock. (laughs) How old were you when you moved out to L.A.? I was in my mid-30s, actually, when I moved out. I was in my maybe early 30s, early 30s. So I went right from school, graduated, and then I started get, I got my first gig, and as we do one regional theater gig, suddenly all the other ones are going, oh, he worked in Louisville, let's bring him here. Oh, he worked in Milwaukee. Oh, good, let's bring him here. So it was just a slew of on and on and on. And then over the years, I got a little tired. I got tired of being away from New York. I got tired of being away from home. And at that time, a lot of actors, directors, writers were coming out to Los Angeles. They were, uh, Hollywood was more or less luring people from the theater. And uh, you could make money. Because <laughs> in theater, well, the art was wonderful. You weren't making a lot of money. So suddenly I got to that point where, and I had agents at a sister agency out here. And they said, you know, you, you would do well in, in, in Hollywood. Why don't you go out there and meet the, uh, meet the people out in Los Angeles and see how you get along? And I came out, met them, we got along really well, and I moved out to Los Angeles. Do you feel like that's advantageous that you moved out a little later? So many of the people come on, they talk about moving there when they're 19 or 20 years old. Do you feel like you had a different perspective being a little older when you first moved? I do, I do, for me. But again, it's so different. No one does it the same way. Something now, the kids, when they get out in some of the conservative programs, they get agents and managers right away in terms of literally their last year in school, agents and managers according them, coming to see them, which is wonderful. I didn't have that, which is wonderful. But for me, again, it made my process of working stronger. So when I came out, I just went from job to job. I have just went from gig to gig to gig to gig because I knew what I was doing. I wasn't lost. Yes, I needed some time to learn how to work in front of the camera, but uh, in terms of, again, the material that I was given, I was able to access it pretty damn quickly. So for me, I, I do think it worked better that I, um, I came out when I was a little older or when I had done uh, more experience in, in, in theater or in, in work. Greg, I want to jump ahead and talk about True Blood a little bit. Tell me about how this part came to be for you. Actually, again, Alan Ball is amazing. I was back in New Jersey doing a play at the time. I was in New Jersey doing a play. I always wanted to do this play. And my agents contacted me. I knew about True Blood because the the woman that I'm married to now on the show was a friend of mine. We had been doing theater in, uh, I think, Hartford, Connecticut. We had done a play together, uh, and I knew over the years. So I had watched it a few times and thought, oh, Idina Porter, it's so wonderful seeing her work on the show. When my agents contacted me and said, listen, can you put yourself on a tape? And, and, and get it out here. Well, first of all, I was in Cape May, New Jersey, which is a gorgeous place by the ocean, but where was I going to find somebody to put me on tape? Never, uh, nevertheless, I did find someone. We taped the uh, audition, sent it out, 
I was pretty confident I wouldn't get it because, again, I wasn't in the room with the producers, and there's a lot to be said for them feeling your vibes and talking to them. So I figured, well, you know, I'll do this, but I won't get it. And, of course, about a week later, I get a phone call and say, oh, by the way, Greg, they cast you. They cast you as Reverend Daniels. And I was, I was amazed. I mean, Alan Ball had enough confidence in, in me and the work to, to cast me from a tape. And what did he initially tell you about your character when he first hired you on? You know, he didn't tell me anything per se. I just knew what I wanted to do with this character. I didn't want this to be the typical reverend, fire and brimstone. And I think that's why they went for me, because the audition was very low-key. He was a minister, but I didn't want to go that Southern Baptist fire and brimstone shouting and, and exhorting the crowd. Say amen. I didn't want to go that way. I really wanted to root him in something authentic and real. And I said, no, you know, I'm going to... So I guess because I didn't get any notes, I knew from the audition that's what they were going for. I, I figured they wanted someone who could take the minister and make him real and not make him this caricature, this stereotype of what a black Southern minister is supposed to be. So I was playing against that. And I, I think that was... And, and everything I did on the show thus far has sort of uh, uh, confirmed that for me. They've never had me going over the top or even when I preach in the, in the church on the show. The sermons are very, very, they appeal to the heart, but not to the emotions. I didn't want to go for the emotions. Say amen, somebody. I just wanted to go to, well, this is the situation. We as a community, what shall we do? So I, I appreciate that because they've made, them, they've made Reverend Daniels real for me. Is it awkward joining an ensemble of a show that's already been on the air? You're the new guy. Is that weird well, at first? The opposite, because I started, I started recurring on season three. In season three, I was actually a recurring character. They'd call. They had something with Reverend Daniels. I'd go and do it. Bye-bye until the next time they call. So I had been doing – I had been meeting them and working with them for a few seasons before they say, you know, we want to make Reverend Daniels a series regular. So I had the advantage of knowing everyone uh, prior to becoming a series regular, which made it so much easier because they trusted me. They know the kind of work I did. I knew them. So it was just a continuation of relationships, except now the uh, relationship was based on being a series regular. Is the tone of the set different this year, with everyone knowing that this is the final season? It is a bit. I think everyone's trying to be professional, and, and so when you get into a scene, it's the same. You're still going for the same values, the same mistakes. However, <laughs> when you tell cut, there is a sense of, every now and then you get reminded that, oh, uh, yeah, this is our final season, but rather than... Rather than feel sad about it, let's celebrate the fact that we've been on for seven seasons and we've got some great episodes this season. I mean, in terms of wrapping it all up, the writers really, rather than playing it safe, they were they realized people wanted closure. The audience and we have such enthusiastic audiences. They wanted closure, but at the same time, they still wanted us to take risks. So we've got some dynamic episodes to shoot, which we have been doing. So again, knowing it's going to be the end, but at the same time. Let's go out blazing. <laughs> Let's go out with what our audiences have always loved about True Blood. So every time we're on the set, it's yes, yes, yes. Tell me about working with Alan Ball. Well, again, Alan is, uh, I would say, I haven't worked a lot with Alan, honestly, because uh, uh, I've worked more with Brian Buckner, who's the co-executive producer. That I've worked with a lot. And again, they give me these words. They give me this material. I come on the set. I have a conversation with the director. Uh, we sort of agree which way it's going, and we shoot. It's been this wonderful process of we trust you, we cast you, let's see what your take is on it. 
if I'm off or if I, if they want something different, of course, they'll give me, uh, for instance, uh, Stephen Moyer uh, directed the initial episode of our final season, and I had never worked with Stephen before, uh, particularly as a director. Uh, but there was just this trust. I knew his work as, a, as an actor, and Stephen just was wonderful. As we all were going, we, we all had the same agenda, and we were all heading in the same direction. So it's almost like we didn't have to say a lot. We didn't have to say a lot. I knew after a take whether it hit or not. I knew after a take what needed to be done in the next take. So it was really just looking at each other and go, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, and maybe one word or two was said. Uh, there's humor there. Oh, okay, great. So not a lot of time was spent in terms of discussing, but more time was spent in performance. Let's do it. And thank God we were all on the same page and we all knew, okay, for the next one, let's do this. Oh, oh wait, wait, let me show you. And they always have the courtesy of saying, what do you want to do? Okay, we've got what we wanted. Now what do you want to do? And so I'll get a take or two in terms of my, what direction I, I think I can add to it, what else I can bring. And that is so gratifying for an actor when they trust you so much that they say, okay, good, here's the ball. Go on, take it. Let's see what you do with it. And more times than not, it, uh, it, it, it does all come together. I know you still also do a lot of work in the theater and you direct frequently. Tell me about how directing theater differs just uh, in the process of directing to directing film. What kind of notes do you give an actor on stage and how would that apply or not apply when working with a camera? theater is a lot more collaborative. I mean, I mean, you rely a lot more on your designers, per se. I've had concepts and creative visions for plays, and then I spoke to the set designer, uh, sometimes a costume designer, and it's altered, it's changed. Whereas film, you know, the director has a very strong vision, and people are more or less carrying that out, the director's vision. If that happens in theater, however, it is more collaborative. I might change slightly or majorly, <laughs> depend on the world that the set designer, costume designer, lighting designer, sound designer, what they bring me really matters a lot in theater. And so it's a little more collaborative in terms of the director being affected by other people's vision and sort of own, sort of folding it into his own film. Again, you, you don't have a lot of time, so uh, the director's vision is sort of the, the, the max. Well, not that I don't listen to other um designers, but uh, whew, if you're on a tight shooting schedule, you got to make your day. We don't, we, we collaborate, but in a way that's much quicker, much, much quicker, and, uh, and, and relies more on the director's done the work. Let's realize his or her vision. Greg, your first credit on IMDb dates, dates back to 1990. You've been oh, working steady ever since. I'm not going to ask you about shows on the, from the 1990 credits, but I will ask you how you've seen the industry change since then. Oh, it's changed amazing. Well, first, the advent of cable. I mean, when I got out here, cable was just sort of, it felt like it was just beginning. But now with shows like HBO and, uh, God, go on and on, TL, there's so many cable shows now that have reached a level of excellence that did not happen at that time. We were still pretty much in the two, four, channels 2, 4, and 7 land uh, when, when I started doing television. But over the years, when I just saw the amazing work that was done on cable television and how that came up, which makes I think, even better for actors. Because, again, there was a very kind of model you had to be a series reg on those channels, those major channels, what was considered major channels at the time. But now, because of the plethora of cable, they could take a lot more risks. That model of, well, you need to be a six-footer, I need to have a chiseled chin, I need to... You can play a lot looser now with the cable station. So I think the opportunities for actors to work in 
in, in interesting scripts and on interesting shows have just multiplied a thousandfold by the advent of all the cable stations and the fine work that they all do, House of Cards, Game of Thrones, uh, True Detective. I mean, these shows are just, the writing and the, the, even the production values are amazing. So there's a lot more opportunities now, I think, to be a series regular on, on, on a show than it was when I, was, uh, when I first started out. I want to ask you about your experience on a cable show. You did one episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Tell me about Larry David and that set. Thank God I came from, 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 from theater because it's in, in, improvisation. I mean, Larry was wonderful. Larry just, we sort of had a template of what we wanted uh, in the scene, but it was then improvisatory. It became, okay, you're the doctor, you're this, you're his skin, and he's going to make a, one of those Larry David comments about affirmative action. What do you do? <laughs> so we improvised. <laughs> And then in the next take, of course, we sort of refined it a little more. But the spirit of it was, let's find what this scene is about. Once we've given you the sort of guidelines about it, let's just go for it. And again, they trusted me. And you can feel when it was clicking. I loved working that way. What a great way to work. They just had an idea, but we didn't have a, a, a finished script. So that became for me. And more people recognized me from that episode. I think it was titled Affirmative Action. Uh, and again, it was one of those taboo things that... Larry David stumbles into. I was a skin doctor for Richard Allen, I believe. Richard Lewis. I'm sorry, Richard Lewis. And there's a comment about, uh, oh, you're his, uh, you're his skin doctor, so you must have done affirmative action. Which just stopped. <laughs> what? I, I beg your pardon? Uh, well, I, I, was just, I was making a joke about you must be... And, of course, he goes from there. So that was a lot of... And Richard Lewis is brilliant, obviously. Richard and Larry is wonderful. So we just, we just improvised. We just improvised. And then later on at the house, they come, they come to my home later on. And, again, we had the temple of the scene, but it was gone. And I really thought, for me, the theater training helped a lot because now I didn't have language. Now I didn't have words. Now I just had to go with what the other actors were bringing me. And that really is a function of listening and reacting honestly, what would I say if someone said that to me without using, you know, without going into profanity? What, what, what would I do? Because we wanted to keep it a comedy and not make it mean or any mean spirit. And that's the brilliance of Larry David. You take those things which are politically incorrect, but you want to keep it in the way of comedy. So finding that, that, that really fine line was a, was a terrific lesson to me uh, and a, a wonderful experience working with Larry. I want to mix it up a little bit, Greg. Tell me about your worst audition experience. You know, my worst. Ross was probably my best. There was a uh, there was a producer that was called in for the show. And the, the the casting director knew me really well, brought me right to the producers, and the producer it was the producer. The director kept throwing these um, adjustments to me, which I usually love. And I said, okay, I get this. And then he said, like, no, 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 no. I kind of wanted this. And they almost became sort of uh, contradictory. And I said, oh, okay, and I did it again. So I felt myself sort of heated up inside. There must have been 15 executives in the room. <laughs> it must have been. And I thought, okay, let's run with this idea. But I always kept my cool. I said, okay. I didn't know if it was a bad day for him. He had to get back to the side. I don't know what it was. But the, but the adjustments were just getting a little ridiculous. And they were getting contradictory. But I was able to sort of run with them. So when I came out of the room, while well, I was sort of like, what is wrong with that guy? Still, I was able to go, okay, you want to come up and throw it at me. Oh, now you, you want me to go left. Now you want me to go right. Now you want me to jump five feet high. Now you want me to jump two feet high. I kept myself open and available and flexible enough to just say, okay, good. And I never saw them. I never showed them that I was losing my cool. I was always very professional. So while it was a tough, it was like being 
under a microscope because he kept throwing these adjustments out. And I don't know what the purpose was. Of course, I didn't get the job. <laughs> but he kept throwing these adjustments out. At the same time, it was triumphant in that, hey, you can come at me with anything you want, buddy. I can do it, and I can do it on a dime. I can turn on a dime for you. So, again, it was the worst in terms of the manner that it was being conducted, but the best in that not only did I survive, but I thought, I showed them, man. You're not going to get under this actor's skin. What were the biggest obstacles you had to overcome when you were first breaking in? Being known, I mean, proving, coming with the same level of work. I mean, I always knew what the odds were. So it wasn't that, oh, I just suddenly, oh, acting is hard to get work. I knew that. I knew that getting out of school. That was nothing that I, uh, but again, I was young and I was ready to take on the odds. I had a lot of, a lot of tenacity. But of course, building a resume is the toughest part because they sort of won't hire you until you have a resume. But how do you get a resume if they don't hire you? And that's the perennial struggle of an actor. How do I build up enough credits or get the job that will get me noticing in? And over time, that happened. But it, it took some time. But uh, again, I tell young actors, you know, tenacity, resiliency. How, 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 how willing and how long are you, are you able to hang in there until that begins to happen? You know, it may be five years, it may be a year for some, it may be 10, it may be 15. That was again Morgan Freeman, who I used to see in New York quite frequently doing theater. And Morgan must have been in, I don't want to say his age, but he had to be in his 40s maybe when he did that role that just turned his career around in that feature, which I don't recall at the time. But he was willing to hang in there. He did the work. He was brilliant. And finally, his opportunity came along. But opportunities come along for, for most of us after doing a body of work. It's not like one role is the overnight sensation uh, uh, thing. People think, oh, wow, this actor's great. Let's put him in a, a hundred different movies. But this actor's been doing this work for the last 10, 15, 20 years. So I would say just, take, just having enough confidence and enough time to give myself to build up a quality body of work. That's what you're looking to do. Is being a working actor what you expected it to be? It is. It is. It, it is. Uh, but I tell you, there's another tier I'm moving into, honestly, and that's being, I've always been a working actor, but now being a recognizable working actor, that's something I hadn't stressed out before. There is a difference. I mean, there are faces you see all the time. They are working actors. Uh, oh, yeah, he's familiar. I don't know his name, but that guy, oh, that, that, that actor's wonderful. But now moving into a tier where you become a recognizable working actor, that is another tier to move into. I'm beginning to enjoy that when people uh, say, oh, you you're Greg Daniel, and you do Reverend Daniels on on the on the True Blood. That's that's a nice that's a nice icing on the cake. <laughs> it is. And the recognition must not only come from from fans; it must come now more from casting directors and producers as well. That must be a nice thing too. Absolutely, I bring on auditions now where the casting director first thing they'll say, "I love your work on True Blood. I really enjoy your work on True Blood." Boy, last night's episode was terrific. So that so I'm not an unknown, <laughs> or even if they've they've seen me in other things, it's just. True Blood is definitely giving them the license to say, we always knew this actor was good. We always, we always liked this actor, but now uh, we can proudly bring him to any producer or whatever show if he's right for it. So, yes, there's recognition now from casting directors and other producers because they've seen the show. They're aficionados of the show because uh, we have such a fine ensemble of players that I do get that recognition, which I enjoy, which I could got to tell you. It's, it's, it's enjoyable. Looking at your career in hindsight, would you change anything? Would you do anything differently? You know, I always thought that I would have come out to Los Angeles. I gave you that whole spiel about starting out and doing regional theater. I, I always thought I would have come out earlier, but no. 
I don't think I would have. I think I still played it the way that was the way that was right for Greg Daniel, rather than coming out here when I was 21 or 20, because I don't think I was ready. I just don't think I was ready uh, to, to deliver that kind of work. So waiting until I graduated and did a few things and lived, not only just professionally, but just lived a little bit for me, that was the right thing to do. So, no, I don't think I would have changed anything. You've been listening to Greg Daniel. You can catch Greg on True Blood Sunday nights at 9 on HBO. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Absolutely, Thank you so much for taking the time.